Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. Today... Jason Timph is here, and it's time for week two NBA overreactions. Like I told you last week, we're going to try and make this a recurring feature on the show. We're going to talk all about the narratives, the game, everything like that within this show once per week. Instead of having Bryce come in on a Sunday or a Monday, I've pulled in Jason Timph because Jason is one of my favorite people working in basketball. Jason hosts Hoops Tonight over on YouTube for the Volume Network. He's the best. Jason, what's going on, buddy? My guy, it has been way too long since we did this. We were we were <laughs> bad and we didn't make enough time this summer, but I'm glad we're finally going to talk some, talk some hoops today. Couldn't be more excited to do it. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about six topics here that I have meticulously crafted in terms of narratives that you could see on a first-take style show. But unlike those shows... After giving the takes, we're going to talk about them reasonably and decide whether or not they're actually true. That's the premise of this show. It's a really fun show, and I hope that you guys are enjoying it based off of how the numbers did on the first one. I'm assuming you guys do. Uh, I will have a Scotty Barnes breakdown probably Wednesday at this point. I will have a Zion Williamson breakdown later this week on the YouTube channel. Go to the YouTube channel, Sam Vecini. All right, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini over on YouTube. Uh, That is the best place to find all of those. Hit subscribe on the podcast feed. Hit subscribe on the YouTube channel. Everything like that. Jason, are you ready to dive into some NBA overreactions? Yes, I am. And uh, I think you've seen a lot of the same things that I've seen in the first couple of weeks. Yeah, I tried to keep it to some of the things we've been texting about and then some of the things I tried to surprise you with a little bit in terms of some (laughs) takes. So first overreaction, the healthy Boston Celtics, the final team unbeaten in the 2023-24 NBA season, are the most complete team in the NBA. Give me your thoughts when I say that, Jason. I think... When it comes down to top to bottom roster roster construction, you kind of have to say that, right? I mean, there is no better combination of like not just perimeter defense, but variety of perimeter defense in the sense that you've got kind yeah. of like the lanky screen navigator and Derek White versus like the fire hydrant can switch up guard and drew holiday to you know kind of Jalen brown's kind of more straight line athleticism versus jason tatum and his length and his strength which has been kind of a revelation this year the rim protection of chris ops porzingis their ability to play all wing lineups because of the strength of that front line they they have uh, in terms of different ways that they can play defensively i don't think you can do any better than that on the offensive end it's this incredible in you know kind of concoction of guys that can get the defense into rotation and guys that can continue to further that process to generate high quality shots the biggest question mark has always been 
their top tier half court shot creation when things really slow down. And I've seen a couple of specific things with Jason Tatum in particular that make me more excited on that front. Um, He's posting up straight up like two and a half times as frequently as he did last year. And when he's doing so, he's very, very impactful there. That to me, I like as a, as a kind of a, curveball for them to go to offensively in any sort any sort of slowdown situation especially with their yep. ability to pretty consistently get good matchups for him um his pull-up shooting is way better than it was last year and his rim finishing is up and so a lot of specific things that were a problem for him in late game situations in the past Seton, i don't want to say rectified because it's such a small sample size but he looks so good that you could argue that the the rest of the talent and the one big potential flaw being that half-court shot creation piece looks like it might not even be an issue. Because what if this also yeah. is the year where Tatum takes that leap? Because if that's the case, they just get the trophy. Like, forget about everything else. They're going to win. So, like, I, th- I-, I think if I was a Celtics fan, I'd be feeling really good right now. I think if I limited this to the East, it would be very clear, right? That they are, to me, the most impressive team I've seen in the East. And in large part, it's because of the leap that Jason Tatum seems to have made. I would very clearly have him as a top three MVP contender through the first two weeks. Right now it's him, Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic. For me, those are just the top three. I think that they have to be the top three right now. Having said that, what is so different are some of the things that you're pointing out. And I'm really glad you brought up the strength aspect. A, he looks fucking enormous. Like he looks absolutely huge, like through his shoulders, through his arms, through his chest. And where I think that that matters is actually on both ends. Yes, you can throw him the ball on the block and he can create like a reasonable efficiency shot. Now that is a huge, huge piece of it. But one question I had with this roster in general was, okay, let's say that a team goes like big and skilled against them. Right. And you don't necessarily want to have both Kristaps and Al Horford on the court at once, because frankly in the playoffs, you're probably not going to want to do that anyway. So how would, they be able to counter that and adjust defensively was a big question for me. And I feel like with this increased level of strength that Jason Tatum has, we've seen it on the glass, particularly so far this year. I think he's just been more capable of kind of taking that physicality, rebounding in traffic, not getting uh, bullied all over the place. He never got bullied, but like, there's a difference between being able to stand up to like a high powered four man and being more of a wing. And I feel like previously he was a wing. Now, I mean, this dude, he doesn't quite look like Kawhi Leonard physically, but it's like not that far off where you could play him at the four and be like, well, you know, we might be okay on the glass. We might not get crushed. Yeah, it, it, I always look at the forward position as like two kind of archetypes the slender, more quick, you know, perimeter defender type of archetype. And then that big giant forward, kind of like the Aaron Gordon archetype. And if you go back three years, Tatum and Brown were both kind of the slender perimeter oriented forward. And now Jason Tatum, at least when it comes to his ability to fulfill responsibilities defensively and on the glass, he can kind of fill more of that Aaron Gordon role. And I mean, I think we've seen that become an incredibly important role over the years, especially in terms of switchability, um, uh, your ability to, to, to put your rim protector into help situations instead of on ball situations because of his ability to guard bigger post players. I think there's a lot of value there. I, I think, it, I think strength in general is one of the most under utilized, under discussed elements yeah. of skill development. I had a coach 
back when I was playing in college. And I, it makes me mad every time I bring this up because I can't remember which coach it was. Um, but one of my coaches said that like the, the weight room also just makes you more confident at standing next to other men. And like, there's, there's a huge truth element to that. Where like, when you know that you've been in the weight room lifting and you're standing on a basketball court with a guy that, you know, you have a strength advantage with, it's crazy how even above and beyond the ability just to do stuff like to fight for position or to, uh, get angles when you're driving or, or in box out situations, it even is just a mental element to, to just like, I'm bigger and stronger than this dude. He can't hold me, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And like, I really do think that, uh, like Tatum said in his preseason presser, he basically said, it's like, oh, it's just me growing up and becoming a man. It's like, yeah, but you're also putting in the work and like, you could see it yeah. show up. And, and it really, there was a specific drive against the Knicks, a slot drive against, uh, Quentin Grimes. Uh, what is that a week ago? Where he kind of tur- he pump faked and then turned his his body to the left and didn't really have a driving angle, but kind of just went through Quentin Grimes to the basket. And I was <laughs> like, oh, like he's discovered now that these guys actually just can't contend with him physically. And as soon as that happens, yeah. it's over because he, especially with his ability to pass and shoot, it's 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 going to turn him into one hell of a player in the big picture. Yeah, I agree. I'm trying. What do you think of the way that? Chris Stops has transformed this offense because I think that's actually a big piece of it as well in terms of giving Jason Tatum those driving lanes and that space to be able to just attack and put his shoulder into dudes. He has that little bit more space, I feel like now, because Chris Stops is able to stretch from 35 feet away from the rim, 30 feet away from the rim. Anytime he's a trailer, the big has to be up on him. Somebody has to pick him up in transition, which leads to either A, the big being away from the rim, or B, you getting cross matches in transition because a forward is picking up Kristaps in transition, which allows you to maybe find another mismatch, especially when you're playing quote unquote smaller with Tatum and Brown at the three and the four at times. I feel like that has been a really big differentiator for the Celtics as well. Kristaps has been incredible, incredible, incredible so far and a huge piece of their success. I think it mostly comes down to the way teams guard him. Again, like I, I, everyone doesn't understand like a lot of times with a defense, they're trying to design their scheme based on what they're willing to allow. And when it came to like an Al Horford pick and pop three, it was a shot that like they had the teams had to be somewhat cognizant of like you need to you need to be willing to offer a late contest you can't just concede the shot to him but there's a difference between that and like oh if we leave this guy open he's going to get a point and a half per possession <laughs> like like yeah. we yeah. we absolutely have no choice but to make sure that we're accounting for this in our coverage it, it's kind of like the huge difference between throwing help at Nikola Jokic versus throwing help at Anthony Davis or Joel Embiid or conceding a mid-range jump shot to a a relatively efficient player versus conceding a mid-range jump shot to Kevin Durant or Devin Booker. It's like it's all relative to how efficient you can be and upgrading that Al Horford position to basically a player that is now it's untenable to allow this guy to operate cleanly in pick and pop situations. It just makes it so that there's so much more downhill driving opportunity in, in those screening actions for Jason Tatum. It's just that that ball screen defender now essentially has to shade far enough that he can uh, offer a contest or you have to rotate on the weak side, which leaves openings on the weak side in the corner where Jason Tatum can make that pass consistently. And so in general, it's just you're upgrading the second half of your two man game to a guy that's not just capable, but rather dangerous. And and that just opens everything up. Well, and you know, I'm really glad you brought up the idea of like 
it mattering who guards people, right? Because Michael Spitzer in the YouTube comments brings up this idea of, I think they had the stretching with Horford and they can do it with Porzingis too. What they added was a ridiculously good roller. Roller, do agree. Like the rolling is really important, but the way that teams guard you is important. Teams were comfortable giving Al Horford that open three-point shot last year. They are not comfortable giving Kristaps that shot, which means that you then have to put somebody on him, which takes somebody out of the lane. You watch a Celtics game versus you watch a Pistons game, right? Watch the number of bodies that Cade Cunningham has to manage in the paint. Watch a Toronto Raptors game. Watch the number of bodies that Scotty Barnes has to navigate when he's getting into the paint and trying to weave through. A Celtics game is wide open, man. It's like, we're we're all here. We are able to find the driving lanes we want to. Derek White has made like 75% of his two-point shots so far. I think that Drew Holiday is above like 70% of his two-point shots. It's because that extra body is rotating from farther over. Sometimes they get there, sometimes they don't, but they're going to be less likely to get there if Kristaps is on the court and he's stretching beyond the three-point line. Yeah, it's really that simple. The size of the angle you have to shoot through by virtue of the 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 that push and pull of help defense literally yeah. makes all the difference because these battles are usually won and lost by inches like if if Tatum just gets his shoulder yeah. 10% lower past the guy he's by him for a layup whereas if he doesn't he's spinning into a jump shot like it, it th- those sorts of things make a huge difference well and it's so funny like people will bring up like the bull bull Victor Wembanyama thing which is absurd and I'm not going to spend time on it but I <laughs> just want to point out like there is an enormous difference in terms of the length of those two on defense right like bull bull is like seven foot two with something like a seven foot six wingspan he's enormous i don't mean to say he's not but victor Wembanyama is seven foot four with an eight foot wingspan you're basically adding eight inches of height that you have to finish over every single time the victor is closing out on your jumper or he's rotating to the rim and he's trying to block a layup. Jason, as somebody who is a high-level basketball player, how hard is it to change your trajectory to account for eight inches of height in front of you? It's ridiculous. I have had so much fun this year watching random clips of NBA players trying to score on Victor Wimbanyama and then and then and then looking incredulous as they figure out that it's impossible. All you have to do on the Bull Bull Victor thing is go look up their per thirty six numbers. Like look at look up Bull Bull right now what he gets per thirty six in the NBA and compare it to what Victor gets as a rookie, and you'll find out pretty quickly that there's a huge gap in production regardless of what the highlights look like. That is true. Okay, so I- I'm going to say this one. This overreaction, it is an overreaction. I would still take Denver. I think Denver is going to win 60-plus games. I know that you also are an, an enormous fan of Denver. But it's this is the finals that I think I want to see uh, for the first two weeks. I want to see Denver and Boston. Do you I agree? Do too. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, and my thing with Denver, too, is like they – Again, like that, that question mark with Boston is still there. Like I still saw them against New York run into half court offense issues. Like I've still seen that pop up from time to time. All it takes is like a little bit of stagnation. And and then suddenly Tatum and Brown start Tatum and Browning again. And then it becomes the same kind of problem (laughs) that you see. And so like, it's just, I, 
you know, Denver to me, they remind me of, um, they remind me of Golden State right around 2016, 2017, where it's like, they're just addicted to winning now. And you could tell now, like, they care more about winning a random regular season game than most typical defending champions do. It kind of feels like a cultural thing. Their defense is better than it's been. And uh, I thought, for the most part, over the regular season last year, they're, they're they're containing on the perimeter better than ever. They're rotating better than ever. So, like, I, it, to me, that that safe bet in terms of, like, right now, if I had to place a bet on who's going to win the title, I still feel like Denver's got the edge. I agree with you. Uh, number two, the Memphis Grizzlies are cooked for the 2023-24 season. It's over. They're done. Jason, I think this one might be true. <laughs> it pains me to say it. I don't like it. I think this might be true. We've talked a lot privately about the Grizzlies defense at this point. What are you seeing from them that frustrates you immensely? Well, this team was never a good uh, half-court offense team, um, even when they're healthy, even with John Morant. They've always relied on two significant elements of their of their game driving their success, their defense and their rebounding. They, they need to defend to get more fast-break opportunities to avoid the half-court as often as possible. And then they need to pulverize you on the offensive glass to get extra possessions to make up for their struggles to score. And so it's, you know, the, the offensive rebounding piece, it's not hard to figure out why it's Steven Adams, one of the best offensive rebounders in the league, not being available. That goes without saying. Yep. And, and certainly at least within the context of the regular season, that really, really hurts. The defensive end has been the, the, the part that bothers me because obviously you lose Dylan Brooks. But the lineups they're putting out there, and I, I mean, it's it's tough with Zaire Williams because I see these plays sometimes where I, he offers a contest on a on a dribble combination pull up, and I'm like, man, this dude's got length, like he can really yeah. bother shots when he's locked in. But he, like, it, obviously, that's a downgrade there. But still, in overall talent with Marcus Smart, with Desmond Bain, with Jaron Jackson, they should be better defensively than they are. Now, you and I have had our discussions about this, and I'm interested to hear kind of like your finer, final diagnosis, so to speak, because to me, I don't know if it's just bad execution or if it's bad scheme, but they're mm. overhelping They're overhelping way too much and in getting into to rotation, borderline an unnecessary amount. We saw you and I talked about a specific possession where um, Zaire Williams basically pre-tagged, the, yeah. like basically sent the defense into rotation as a result of nothing, as almost as if they were planning to do so, and it, it ended up giving up a, a wide open three on the right wing, and like some of that, I feel like is putting them in into a precarious position because at the end of the day, they do have good enough perimeter defenders that if you make guys take tough contested shots. That is going to lead to more misses, which is going to lead to more opportunities for you to get out in transition, which is going to help your offense, which is going to allow you to set your defense more. I think, I think, I think they're capable of playing better than they have been. I guess what I'm saying is, is like I, I definitely think they're in some trouble in the standings. Like this looks like a play-in team. Yeah, but John Morant will be coming back. Obviously, is Brandon Clark going to come back at all this year? Unclear to me. I hope so. Uh, you know, you never like seeing guys tear Achilles. I, I hope so is the way I would put it. Maybe. Mm. But yeah, so like I, I still think they're going to be a dangerous playoff team. Uh, don't be surprised if John Morant comes back on it with a vengeance too, from the standpoint of just wanting to make up for letting his team down by missing this part of the season. So I, I definitely worried in the standings, but I wouldn't say it's over yet. So I think where I'm at on it is on their defense specifically here. 
it feels like to me that they are overhelping everywhere first and foremost, but B like, it feels like part of why that has been the scheme for many years is because most of the time it was Jaron Jackson overhelping, right? Because you had Steven Adams behind him. Now without Steven Adams behind him, you have Jaron mostly playing center. Like for the most part, they've done some different things here and there. Like Santi played their last game, but the problem with not having Jaron be the overhelper is that Jaron is one of the best instinctual defenders in the NBA while also being six foot 11 with a seven foot four wingspan who can fly around and is like unbelievable with the sense of timing. If it's Zaire Williams, Zaire Williams is fine. The problem is when it's like David Roddy is overhelping and Jake LaRavia is overhelping and all of these other bodies are kind of overhelping. Like I can't figure out why they haven't gone to a slightly more conservative approach defensively. Uh, I did feel like it was a little bit better against Portland in the game. They won at least. And if you look at the numbers, like I want to be clear here, like they are 13th in defensive efficiency right now. It hasn't been some fucking travesty here that they've been terrible. It's more that this team has to be a top five defense while John Morant is out because newsflash guys, when John Morant comes back, the defense is going to get worse. The offense is going to get way better, which is super valuable. They need another creator. God knows they need a real creator, like kind of point blank, all due respect to Desmond Bain, but like they, they need a guy to be able to come in and create in a real way with what they're doing defensively over helping it's leading to like, it feels like a crazy number of three. Like they're giving up so many open threes. It feels like yeah. to me every time I watch them, 22 like, plus a game last I checked. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's just insane. Like giving up that level of threes and it almost feels like they're trying to turn teams over. Like they're trying to heat them up and like get it moving. And they have a super high turnover rate defensively. But then on offense, they're also turning the ball over a lot. So it's leading to these like crazy transition fests. Like the, the Grizzlies were never like a crazy transition team, right? Like that doesn't, people love John Morant out on the break and they did play faster last year. But like, I never felt like, I never felt like it was this easy, like on kind of both ends of the transition spectrum. Like they play fast, but not like this, right? Well, yeah, I think I think part of that too is you've got some high risk, high reward playmaking coming from Marcus Smart in a lot of ways, and, uh, yeah. and Jaron Jaron Jackson can be a little bit like that too. I didn't watch the Blazer game. Have they finally started staggering Bain and Smart a little bit more? Because I saw that was an issue early oh, in I the don't... year where they kept playing these non Bain Smart lineups, and I'm like, this is you're just way too easy to guard out there with David Roddy and and Jake LaRavia, Derek Rose. And, you know, like that would be the other element to it. But on on the defensive end of the floor, I think, again, you put it perfectly. You're, you're always going to be more understanding of limitations with the team when they have an elite punch elsewhere, right? Like with Dallas, for instance, like I've, I've been like, oh my gosh, they're getting like half of the available rebounds. That's like a huge win, <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. they're a mediocre rebounding team. Go us, you know, like that, that makes sense. But when you're talking about a team in Memphis who absolutely must be a top tier defense to have any chance to contend with the other teams in the West, there's no question it's been a disappointing start for them on that end. 
Yeah. So just looking at the smart Bane stuff, they definitely staggered them more in the last game against Portland. They played 24.7 minutes together. It looks like, which is not bad. Like that makes more sense. That's what they should be doing. Uh, look, I don't think you fire Taylor Jenkins or anything. Like, I I think that that would be kind of crazy at this point, given that John Morant isn't even back yet. What does their record have to be at this point by the 25th game when John Morant comes back for you to feel like they have a chance to make the top six, let's say? Well, he's kind of working against a curve here, too, in the sense that like they've been so good without Jaw over the last couple of years, which is what makes it so bizarre. But I think I think it shines a light on Steven Adams as an unsung hero in a lot of ways. Um, I would say that if they're not flirting with 500 at that point, I would be disappointed if I was a Grizzlies fan. Like I'd be hoping to be around 11 and 14, 12 and 13, uh, it, which would which would require at this point playing really well moving forward. What are they one and five now? So like you you'd have to one you'd have six. to play yeah. one and six. Ugh, ugh, ugh. That's tough. I, I I yeah I would I would hope that I still think they're like Desmond Bain's playing really well. I I still think yeah. that they're. I still I remember when everyone was mad this summer when he got paid. That was that was funny. Um, I, I I still think that this is a, a team that should be able to play 500 basketball without Jaw. So here's your next set of games: Miami at home, Utah at home, three game road trip, Clippers, Lakers, Spurs. Which that doesn't seem ideal. Then they have a home game against Boston. That's your next six. I mean, like they might go two and four in that next six, even man. Like, if they go two and four, they're sitting at three and ten at that point. Yikes! Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit worried. I'm a little bit worried. Uh, I'm I'm actually quite a bit worried. I I, I think that the playoffs are going to be really hard for them. I think they can make the play in, but if they're like seven and 18 by the time jaw comes back which is not impossible given this start i'm gonna be really really worried about them and i think that there's a real shot that this thing might be cooked well and you hit the you hit the like the there always was like this second line of defense to the uh to the grizzlies with adams and i mean i i do you remember how athletic and and how well they protected the rim in those jaron jackson brandon clark lineups when the two of them would kind of have that similar kind of a backup rim protection kind of role that's yeah. the other thing too. Is like there's no guarantee that John Morant's going to come back, and this is really going to get that much better either. So they got to the figure offense, it out with this group. The offense will get way better, which yeah. is a huge piece of it. Like the, if the yeah. offense is way better, that's enormous. Desmond Bain, by the way, I do just want to shout him out. I feel like you know I might have thrown like slight shade there momentarily. He's averaging 27 <laughs> points. I think he's been fantastic. I, I like don't mean this in any way. He's a little bit overtaxed. I think is the number one option. But, like, he's been fantastic doing everything he can to lift the tide for this Memphis Grizzlies team. Other piece, and then we'll move on. I just want to note that Tyus Jones is no longer here. And I think that Tyus Jones is a better offensive player than Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart's a better overall player. But Tyus Jones' ability to foster ball movement, to kind of get things rolling in an efficient manner, I think is also hindering their lack of offense right now as they adjust to having Marcus Smart out there. Let's take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back and we'll dive into uh, number three here. 
we're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP hackers and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot-blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash gametheory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash gametheory. All right, Jason. Overreaction number three. The Milwaukee Bucks will not be able to defend well enough to legitimately compete for an NBA title. They are currently 27th in defensive rating. Uh, they started the season not playing drop coverage with Brooke Lopez for reasons that have completely eluded me. I cannot understand it. And then Adrian Griffin came out and said before their most recent game, which I believe is against the Knicks, if I remember correctly. Hey, sometimes the players, they might be right. So we're going to make some adjustments and go back to Brooke Lopez uh, playing drop. Hey, they only gave up 105 points by far the least number of points they've given up in a game this year. They win the game. It was an important one. It was an in-season tournament game. Hey, maybe just it's almost like he like didn't watch this team beforehand and then decided I'm just going to put my stamp on this team and I am going to play super aggressive coverages. I I got nothing, man. 
that 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 was wild. The, the first four games for the Bucks were wild. Do you think that this team playing drop now can get to a point where it is reasonable defensively? I think so. I mean, here's the thing. I, I want to cut Adrian Griffin 20% slack and just say <laughs> that when I, I did my Bucks deep dive on Friday and uh, they also just flat out weren't executing anything in terms of the coverages defensively. Um, and yeah. so like, I want to, and, and that's an important detail. Now I, it just, the the other side of that is like there's you shouldn't even need to see that executed to know that that's not the appropriate approach approach with this particular roster right um, in the big picture do I think this team could be a top ten defense as currently constructed probably not they're too weak on the perimeter I think the Connaughton um, Malik Beasley two guard slot has been really iffy at best yeah. um, uh, Malik Beasley has shot it better than he did with the Lakers at least, but it, I don't think in, in to a, an extent that's been worthwhile for the Malik Beasley experience. I do think like of all of the positions in, in the league that are like likely or not likely to switch in some way, shape or form over the course of the season, that two guard spot feels like a certainty to me. I just feel like they upgrade that at some point, uh, either through the deadline or through the buyout market. It just, you don't take that team. You don't trade for Dame to start Malik Beasley at the two in, in a play in a championship run. I really don't think that's the direction they're going to be going. I don't think Marjan Beauchamp is ready to play in a slot like that either. So like, that's a whole other issue. The bigger problem to me is let's say you do maximize this defense and you hover in that 10 to 15 range. Yeah. NBA history tells us if you're going to win a title as a defense, that's not elite. Even if you are good, you have to be, truly transcendently great offensively and they just haven't been to 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 start this season at least compared to what we would expect from this group of talent I've been I think there's like Dame I think came into this is my take on it I'm not as well connected as you are so maybe you've heard more but like Dame I thought came into the season out of shape uh he was leaving a lot of shots short on the front of the rim if you look through his shooting this year there's a, almost every single one of his misses on pull-up threes has been short off the front of the rim. I don't think he's quite got his legs underneath him yet. He's still got the foul grifty thing going on. He's still super savvy getting downhill and making plays. The The thing to me is like until Dame really gets clicking in high gear, um, I don't really think they're going to have as much success with the Dame Giannis pick and roll because that's been the ma- major criticism is like, oh, they're not running enough Dame Giannis pick and roll. And I agree, but I think it comes down to two things. One, I don't think Giannis is really that bought into that idea yet, and and that will take some time. And two, it's going to really require, because of their other spacing concerns, it's going to require Dame truly getting panic traps. And yeah. I don't think he's going to start getting panic traps until he starts hitting shots at a high clip. Like there was a, there was a, yeah. the, a couple of pick and rolls against the Toronto Raptors in that game where uh, where Dame was acting as though there was going to be a panic trap and then there wasn't one. And it's like you got to you got to demonstrate yeah. that you're going to beat that coverage before they start kind of throwing the kitchen sink at you. And so I think I think in general Dame getting his legs underneath him will help. But in the big picture, Giannis is going to have to embrace that role man thing a little bit more in order for this offense to reach what it's capable of. Because unless they're a top-tier offense, the defense I don't think is going to be good enough to get it done. Yeah, so a couple of just like warning sign flashing lights that happened to me. Losing Terry Sots in the preseason seemed like one that 
might lead to a slow start, right? Because Terry Stotts has been with Dame in Portland for years upon years and understands how to get the best out of Dame. So when you lose him, I wonder if that kind of maybe threw some things off in terms of the offense being as well-oiled maybe as it could be coming out of the gate. Now they're going to have to figure out some different things as they run through the season and figure them out on the fly. The good news is that you have 82 of these things and you get a chance to run out as many different combinations as you can, especially when you have Giannis and Dame, you're going to make the playoffs, right? So finding the right players around them and finding the chemistry and ball screens it's a little bit harder than what I think people remember. By the time James Harden and Joel Embiid were playing together middle of last season, late last season before Harden's injury, they were basically unstoppable in ball screens. They were ridiculous, right? I think, but if you go back and you watch early, the first year that Harden got there, it took some time for Harden to figure out the spacing on, okay, Joel's going to short roll into like that free throw area. Okay. What do I do when Embiid does that? Where can I find the pocket pass? What is the angle on the pocket pass? There are just a lot of different trickier things than what I think people often recognize when trying to come together as a pick and roll combination. I figured there would be some time Growing that it pains. would take. Maybe growing pains is a good way to put it. Yeah. I didn't necessarily think it would be quite this way. If only because I thought that Griffin early in the season would want to run as many of these things as possible to try and get the growing pains out. Right. And we haven't seen that piece of it yet. They keep trying to run that stupid like wedge screen to set uh, Giannis up with a post up on the left side of the floor. It, like it's weird. It's it's so weird that they're like intentionally like scripting action to just get the ball back to Giannis the same way they've been doing well, it for years, which is bizarre. It's that and like I feel like I haven't like the thing that is so obvious in my brain is like run a shit ton of like empty side ball screen actions, right? Because you have Giannis flying downhill at the rim in a wide open space, right? Or you have, you know, running on the left side of the court, you have Damian Lillard coming to the left side of the court. And if you don't get up on him, he's going to pull up from three. You are seeing specifically the Philadelphia 76ers have a lot of success with that early in the season with Maxi and Embiid. They're just running like left side empty ball screens like crazy. And it's really, really hard to guard. I Look, just do that. Seriously, just do that. I think that would be a really, really easy way to potentially get Dame going or to potentially get, Giannis on the short roll and have him kind of creating in a real way. I, I just, I'm surprised that they aren't trying to get the growing pains out as much as possible, but back to the defense. Another piece of this is that Dame has just been not very good on defense so far. Uh, yeah. He's been, Dame he's has been, been bad. Uh, yeah. I, uh, yes. Dame has been bad. <laughs> we, we just need to call it out. Dame has not been very good on defense so far. He's getting caught on literally every single screen. He is like a magnet for them right now. If you're going to play drop, that is the biggest thing that a guard has to do is to fight over the top of the screen. He has to be able to get a rear view contest, the side view contest, and be able to, uh, in some way, shape, or form, speed up the ball handler. He hasn't done it so far. Mm-mm. Needs to do it. I think he will at some point as he continues to work himself into game shape, but needs to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think I think in general, too, like uh, old habits die hard. 
And I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it might just take 20, 30 games for Dame to build up the habits that he basically hasn't had over the last, you know, half dozen years of his career. And I, I liked the, the point you made about the, the cleared side pick and rolls because Giannis seems a little uncomfortable short rolling. Have you noticed that? Like, I don't know if it's just because he doesn't like kind of going down into traffic while looking back. I don't know if that yeah. specifically is the issue. That said, like there, there was a late game possession um, uh, the other day. It was in the Knicks game where Gian- Giannis picked and popped to the top of the key instead of rolling. And it just kind of seems like that's naturally what he wants to do. My thing is like, still throw it to him there and then just catch and go. Like, like if that's what you want to do, right. do that, but then get the ball to him and have him go downhill. And, and again, like uh, the cleared side is a great way to simplify that because then he wouldn't even have to look to his left. You could run that exact same action, cleared side of the floor, have him pop to the left wing as Dame is going, just have him throw that behind the back pass behind him. And then Giannis just catch and just barrel downhill to the rim. And everyone's right. going to react to you and you're going to be able to get good looks. But ideally, you'd want to get him active in the short roll. But it just for whatever reason seems like he doesn't want to do that, which for the record, he's never been a short roll player. Why? Because he's never played with anybody that dictated a short roll as, as a counter for that. Like it's right. always been more of like a hard roll as Drew's working methodically with him to potentially go to the rim. That like, and even then they didn't do that that much. So I, I think that uh, that would go a long way. But at the at the end of the day, right now, what I see is the untenable like kind of scale of like like the weakness of Beasley and Dame making it so that it's too difficult for that back line to cover for them. Yeah, uh, Basketball Genesis in the YouTube comments says, I was kind of scared of Giannis short roll passing. He low-key struggles to make those reads as a primary <laughs> ball handler, so he definitely must hate it now. Not false. The difference there for me is that the advantage is already created for him. He doesn't have to focus on creating the advantage and then reading the court. Short roll passing is more your advantage created and you just have to process it quickly. You're almost diagnosing it before you catch the ball a lot of the time. That's what what has made Draymond Green so good at it. And mm-hmm. additionally, it's why I think you can teach guys to do this. Like Clint Capella like could not do any of this when he first got to the NBA, but over his time in Houston, playing in space, playing with James Harden, having P.J. Tucker, Trevor Ariza in the corners, it became easier for him to do mm-hmm. that. So I think this is something you can teach guys. I think that it is something that they... Giannis will develop with. I think the Bucks are going to be fine. Now the question is like title contention. They need to find answers on defense first. I think they can. I think it probably involves a trade at some point or Marjan Beauchamp just being like really good, which mm-hmm. I maybe and maybe like I'm not going to rule it out, but I think there's a long way to go still there. His athleticism pops off the screen for sure. And the motor. He plays hard every single night. Plays hard every single night. Question number four, or statement number four, really. The Atlanta Hawks with a deeper, more athletic roster are a top four team in the Eastern Conference this season. The Atlanta Hawks, I believe, currently have like eight guys averaging double figures. It's like a crazy number. It is all of Trey Young, DeJounte Murray, DeAndre Hunter, Jalen Johnson, Sadiq Bey, Clint Capella, Bogdan Bogdanovich and Onyeka Okongwu all averaging at least 11 and a half points per game. DeJounte and Trey are up at 21 points per game. This is a fantastic fun team. 
I love watching the Hawks right now. They do weird stuff defensively. I broke that down in the Jalen Johnson video I did. They have these spurts where they can't stop anybody, like what happened in the first half of that Minnesota game where I think Minnesota dropped like 80 points. It was insane. It was like and a 162 yet, defensive rating in that first half, if I remember correctly. Crazy. And then they shut it down in the second half, and they were like really, really good on defense. I love what I've seen from DeJounte Murray so far. It feels like the blend between him and Trey Young is starting to really find its legs. The Jalen Johnson leap has been enormous. Uh, I've done like a full breakdown video on that on YouTube. Go there. You can watch that. Uh, this team is just deep. They're long. I like what they're getting from DeAndre Hunter. Sadiq Bay feels like a pretty good bench player to me personally to bring off at like six foot eight who can knock down shots and not be abysmal defensively. This feels like a team that can be a top four team in the East to me right now. I really think that. I'm 100% on the same page with you. I'm shocked at how much I've covered the Hawks to start this year. Very unlike hoops tonight <laughs> for those of you guys who, who listen to that show. It's it's funny because I, I they almost have transformed. Like the, To me, the John Collins trade was very much a reconfiguration of the geometry of the way that that team plays. The, you know, John Collins was basically the worst high volume spot up guy in the league last year. I shouldn't say high volume, but reasonable volume spot up guy in the league last year. He was converting spot up possessions at like two thirds of a point per possession. It was putrid. And um, in general, just kind of slotting guys that are a little bit more skilled offensively on the perimeter into that group has helped a lot in in their overall spacing. The, The Hawks are ninth in spot up efficiency this year after being 27th last year. You can kind of pretty quickly put together how that would help a basketball team. In general, they just seem way more athletic and driving kicky than what they've been in years past. And what I mean by that is like they're better at just furthering the advantage, slashing uh, off the wing, off of kickout passes out of the corner, and and further compromising the defense that in a way that kind of capitalizes on what Trey Young and DeJounte Murray bring to the table. And then that athleticism, I would I would say that the Hawks certainly don't have a defensive identity yet. It's not like it's not a habit for them, <laughs> but they definitely go through these stretches where they're like that where all of them just suddenly kind of kick into high gear athletically and they can be difficult to handle there. And then again, like it happened again in that Pelicans game. Once again, second half, they just came out and strangled the Pelicans. And this is like a consistent theme for them when they really lock in in that uh, on both ends of the floor like that, they can be tough to beat. I just think it makes more sense to kind of t- to to ditch that weird kind of like two roller thing they had going on is kind of Cleveland Cavaliers esque, uh, yeah. where you were running pick and roll with the player in the dunker spot, which was just so bizarre to me. They still do a little bit of that, but it's different. It's like ghost. They're running a lot more guard guard screens or guard wing screens yeah. and pick and pops with those guys, uh, which is basically Jalen Johnson, Sadiq Bay, and DeAndre Hunter have all hit multiple pick and pop threes this year so far, which I think is a good yeah. indicator of just kind of how different their offense looks compared to just the spamming of the Collins and, and uh, Capella pick and roll. In general, I just think they're a far more dynamic offense by going to running two wings instead of two four. Because Collins to me was never really a wing. He was basically another big, essentially, in yeah. that position. And I think just kind of making that slight tweak to the geometry, it's funny how it just kind of has everything else falling in place for this team. Well, it's that, and it's Quinn Snyder is like a big piece of this mm-hmm. too, right? Quinn Snyder over Nate McMillan. Snyder got there late last year, probably couldn't implement everything he wanted to implement in terms of scheme. He gets there this year, and now 
you see a lot more of a similar Utah jazzy kind of thing that he ran for many, many years in Utah with Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell. Now having DeJounte Murray and Trey Young, who all due respect to Donovan and Mike, that's an upgraded version of it. In my opinion, Trey's ability to pass and make plays. I think Trey has really, really been a high level distributor this season. Uh, he's not shot it well. Obviously, I think he's at like yeah, eventually he'll make shots too. Imagine that <laughs> from three. Yeah, like that's going to come at some point. I think he's going to knock down shots. So when I see all of this, I think that they can be a top four team in the East, given that Trey Young is shooting 28% from three, DeJounte is shooting 30% from three, Bogdan Bogdanovich is shooting 32% from three. Like, really, the only guys that are knocking down shots are DeAndre Hunter, Jalen Johnson. Sadiq Bay, that's not like gonna keep up. These dudes can shoot, I think. So when I look at all of what they've done offensively, I think it's definitely sustainable. Like they they are going to be would arguably get arguably get better. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be a top five, top six offense, I think, in the league. The question I have is defense, and I think that they're going to be good defensively too. Like I think that is they continue to work their way into the season. Capella and Okongwu is a strong defensive center combination. I think they play at the level a little bit too much in ball screens. I think I would drop a little bit more, especially when Capella is out there. Maybe that'll change. Maybe it won't. But you have Jalen Johnson and DeAndre Hunter, who are awesome wings. DeJounte Murray flies around all over the place and just makes shit happen. They have a roster that makes sense defensively now in a real tangible way that I think is going to allow them to get better throughout the year. I think this can basically be a top five offense and a top 15 defense. And that sounds like a really good team to me. Probably a top four team in the East, right? That's where I'm at. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And and, and I don't know if this is a Quinn Snyder piece too, but like they're running a lot more in transition. Um, and, 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 and the overall athleticism is helping them a lot there. It's actually been funny watching Trey Young compete defensively in these in these defensive runs that they go on because it's kind of hectic and it's full of mistakes. But like he's fighting to front the post and he's making defensive rotations and he's doing some little stuff to to throw in his little two cents as 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 the as the team goes on those defensive runs. It's been fun. I, I'm I'm excited to watch the Hawks this year. One final note. The Atlanta Hawks so far are shooting only nine point seven mid range jumpers per game this season uh last season that number was at 14.7 mid-range jumpers basically those shots are now becoming threes or shots at the rim that's why we're seeing much more efficient offense from the atlanta hawks as well just shot distribution stuff from quinn snyder in terms of what he's trying to run it's a really big help and a really big differentiator for what atlanta is doing overreaction number five franz wagner is not only the best player on the Orlando Magic currently, because he is. Like, we need to acknowledge that. I know that Paulo has been great the last two games. Franz is the guy that consistently brings it every single night. But Franz is actually the best prospect on the Orlando Magic long-term, not just right now. Jason, yell at me. Tell me why that's crazy. It's not a bad take. Uh, I would argue Franz is my favorite archetype of player. My favorite type of basketball player is the big playmaking forward. The the guy that can score a little bit, but can 
generate offense from different spots on the floor, whether that's posting up, whether it's attacking mismatches from the perimeter, running ball screens, that sort of thing. And then as a willing passer in those situations. So Franz is definitely my favorite type of player. I think that Paolo has an interesting uh, – it's funny because he always gets compared to Carmelo, but I actually think Paolo has a really interesting defensive ceiling um, uh, just kind of as like kind of a small ball five slash, you know, kind of versatile backline defender as a four that it makes him exciting. Obviously, the jump shot is just nowhere near where I would like for it to be, although he made a bunch of them against the Lakers. Uh, I, I would like for his uh, jump shot to improve. I'd like for his ability to read the floor to improve, but – I can't write off Paolo as a as a prospect this early just because I think he's got that high two-way potential. But at this point, like him and Franz at the very least are neck and neck in terms of prospects, which for the record, if you're a Magic fan, is exactly where you want to be. But they're like a they're just a pain in the ass to play against. <laughs> I, I've, I've watched him I've watched him three times this year, all three of the uh LA games and what they went one and two in those games and could have won yeah. the uh, the one against the Lakers and actually controlled the Clippers for a little chunk of that game. But like they're just they're kind of like like mean and 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 scrappy and physical and like they're yeah they're long as all hell and their guards are are athletic uh uh pains in the ass to deal with like even Cole Anthony, who was definitely not my favorite player over the last few years, has kind of sort of like grown up a little bit and turned into kind of a grown up backup point guard who's presents his own kind of physical issues for some some guards around the league. I, I think I think the Magic are in, are in a really good spot right now. So the Magic are in an amazing spot. What I will say about Paulo on defense, and I think this is a really interesting question for you because you bring up the idea of two-way potential for Paulo. I agree with you on it being in him being interesting at the five as like a switchable five who can bring you something specific in moments where you need that. Do you think that can be a primary option or do you think it is a essentially like a combo breaker, right? Where a team goes on a run, we're going to put Paulo at the five and we're going to switch everything. Do you think he can be good enough as a primary rim protector in the regular season to actually like play the five consistently, because if he can do that, it's definitely Paulo. Like Paulo is definitely their best prospect. I am more skeptical of that. I think in terms of him being like a consistent help defender, protecting the rim in ball screen, possession after possession, after possession, having to switch out onto the perimeter possession after possession, the magic are an interesting team build. As far as like, you might be able to switch everything. Like you, you have Markel Fultz, Jalen Suggs, these dudes are beasts on the perimeter defensively. You might, like Anthony Black as well, awesome defensively. You might be able to get away with switching everything. It's going to be really, really interesting. But do you think he can be good enough as a primary rim protector to make it work? No, I don't. I I, I want to be clear. I, I view him as a small ball center in as like as you put it uh, mm-hmm. as like basically a curveball is is your change up to your uh, um, to what your fastball is. Eight that said, I, I do think I do think he can be a very good help defender. I think he can be a very good low man as a as a secondary rim protector and as a defensive rebounder and as an as a guy who can reasonably help as the low man while also recovering to the corner. Like I just think in general, he's an intriguing defensive prospect and. I really am impressed by how advanced his post game is for his age. And that, that to me makes him a very intriguing prospect. Again, like 
Paolo's uh, Franz, Franz is my favorite prospect on that team. He's my favorite type of prospect. I'm just not willing to write Paolo off entirely as like that level of prospect, if that makes sense. No. To, and this is where we should talk about Franz. Like to me, this says more about Franz than it does about Paolo. Like a hundred percent. I think Franz might be the most underrated, like legitimate. This guy's going to be like a five time, six time all-star in the league right now. He is unbelievable. Every time you watch him, he brings something new to the table. He's getting better and better. Like he is creating shots out of ball screens consistently. I know he's shooting like 40% or something like that, 42% from the field. But that's because like he is responsible for creating a lot of what they're doing right now, especially in the games where Fultz is missed, especially in the games where like Gary Harris hasn't been out there. Like they've had a lot of dudes come in and out of the lineup that have kind of thrown things off for them a little bit in terms of the offensive execution. And he's been the one that has to take on the bigger role to be able to do it. And I think that he's showing that he is very capable of it from a creation and decision-making level. It's just that he's still fine-tuning maybe that final product as a 22-year-old. You know what I'm saying? Like that that touch, that finishing on the interior. Uh, sometimes the pull-up shooting will go. All this is going to improve. Like he's going to get way better at this, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th and that's the big one for me is like right now, I just don't think he's quite imposing enough as a score in pick and roll. And that'll be the piece that he'll, he'll have to add. And, and he's certainly capable. I mean, we just saw it recently, but like he, he's going to uh, eventually become that kind of like poor man's Luca, which I think is really yeah. exciting. Um, um, but yeah, like right now it's the scoring piece that's kind of holding him back in that regard. Yeah. Uh, the last guy I want to talk about is Jalen Suggs. Uh, Jalen Suggs, all defense campaign is here. He has been unbelievable on that end this season. He flies around like they have a top three defense right now. I think that like the biggest reasons for that are him, like Wendell Carter, I know is out now. I thought Wendell is just so, so sharp positionally defensively. Uh, I think Paulo has been pretty good defensively this year, honestly. Like, I, I don't think that that is, I, I think that, you know, someone says in the comments here, his defense has been overly criticized. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think Paulo has been pretty manageable so far this year defensively and been pretty good. The help is all over the map, but he's physical on the ball. He's aggressive. He tries to be disruptive. Yeah. Like, Jonathan Isaac coming back in, giving them 15 minutes a night if he can. But Jalen Suggs, to me, his defense has keyed this entire thing. He is so aggressive, so physical. He's a crazy playmaker. I love what he has brought to the table defensively. And, you know, for the last year, I've been saying, I think he's like this coming generation's Marcus Smart, basically. That, that kind of feels like where this is going. That specific archetype is becoming a super valuable playoff player too which is like the unscreenable low center of gravity fire hydrant of a guard that can switch can lock and trail can uh generate dribble penetration slashing from the wing or in transition like i mean we just saw bruce brown do it i think terrence mann is kind of that sort of thing for the clippers as well i think that specific type of like it's almost like 
It's because like Jalen Suggs is almost more of like an undersized wing than he is a guard. Because he's not if you yeah. just have him run your entire offense for you as a live dribble creator, you're going to be disappointed. But like in terms of kind of operating off the ball is almost like a uh, like a slashing wing on offense, and then as that primary defensive option on the perimeter, I think he represents a, a, just a, the latest in a long line of that successful archetype. I'm so disappointed in the Suggs offense. I thought that he had a lot more juice in ball screens, uh, but I'm not sure he does. It's maybe he's still still 21, oh, yeah. 22, something yeah. like that. He's got a shot. Uh, last overreaction here before we go there. I do just want to note Orlando. I think this is a play in team. I think they're going to be really good. I hope they stay healthy. That seems to be the biggest thing right now. Franz and Paulo are the only guys that uh, seemingly have been in this lineup the whole year. Uh, right now, Wendell Carter, Gary Harris, Markel Fultz, all those guys are out. I hope that they stay healthy. Luckily enough, they have enough depth in the backcourt to make up for Fultz being out. I think Fultz, frankly, for the first four games, was their second best player this year. So I would really he's like so to see good. him back. He's so good. He's he's turned into such a good player. Uh, he he really is so creative. Uh, he's a really really good defender. Just all of it across the board is fantastic with Fultz. But I think this team can be a real play-in team that maybe is like a top eight seed play-in team, depending on how things go. Uh, Okay, number six. The LA Clippers backcourt with Russell Westbrook and James Harden together is inherently one that does not fit together stylistically and will lead to disappointment for the Los Angeles Clippers. Thoughts, Jason? I like the James Harden fit with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I just don't mm-hmm. understand how, if this was your goal the whole time, why you even went about the process of bringing Russell Westbrook back just because of all of the potential ramifications in terms of personalities and locker room fit and chemistry and all that stuff. To me, uh, the James Harden trade effectively puts Russ exactly where he was in, uh, in the Lakers situation, essentially a redundancy. Which, when Russ is a redundancy, it requires him to be good on the margins, which has always been his weakness. Now, you and I have talked about this before. Russ is a a better personality fit with the Clippers. And so maybe they'll be able to kind of cope through that better than uh, than he was able to in the, in the Lakers situation. But to me, the advantage that Russ brought was he brought downhill force, rim pressure, a little bit of like that kind of fire hydrant guard thing I was just talking about. Russ is yeah. kind of – that's what's so frustrating about Russ is he could be that. Like he could be such a deeply impactful player just by being that. And he was for all of two games in the Clippers Sun series. And 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 we, and then unfortunately injury kind of removed him from that situation. But to me, like the the this has to eventually progress to Terrence Mann being the two next to James Harden, doesn't it? And that's just going to put Russ into more, uh, you know, situations where he's facing shorter shifts, a shorter leash with his decision making, you know, uh, uh, more requirement for him in terms of off ball awareness and on ball decision making. Like once again, in that Lakers Clippers game on, on, uh, was it Wednesday night? He just randomly in the fourth quarter just over pursued and transition slipped and fell and turned the ball over, you know, and like, it's like you just, in a game that goes to OT, you just can't afford to make those types of mistakes, right? And like, 
again, I I really like the James Harden fit because you know what I envision? I envision like him having a partnership with Kawhi very similar to Embiid. Kawhi really likes those elbow post ups or elbow face ups, I should say, and I kind of kind of see them running a lot of that huh. kind of stuff, which will probably most more than likely end up in switches, but switches where you're pulling James Harden's defender into an isolation defense possession against Kawhi at the elbow. I think in general, he's going to be able to set them up with advantage situations more frequently. Really, it's this simple to me. That Laker game was a perfect microcosm. They rely too much on tough shot making. The only reason they had a chance to win that game was Paul George made four impossible pull-up threes in that fourth quarter run. They were not generating easy kind of driving kick basketball that you're accustomed to seeing from the Clippers when they're at their best and they can stagnate too easily that way. So I like the idea of James Harden being the guy that basically gets the defense in rotation and then playing off of that. I just don't know how Russell Westbrook basically fits into that equation. So I hadn't thought about the two man Harden Kawhi game yet because typically Harden plays so well with a big, right? Like that tends to be Harden's Harden's ball screen partner almost always has been a big throughout the course of his career or PJ Tucker, who essentially acts as a big. The Kawhi, if they play Tucker at the five and run one four Kawhi hardened ball screens, if you get Kawhi to set screens, which like I feel like we haven't seen a lot of throughout the course of his career, he could be good at it. That could actually be like really devastating. That could really, really, really be good now that I think about it. That's a really good call, Jason. I had not thought about that. That, that is, I'm like a little bit thrown now <laughs> as I think about well, that. Well, it, it, to me, like that, that is uh, uh, specifically what makes it work is kind of the geometry of bringing two to the ball or some sort of hedge and that short roll to the elbow kind of making sense. And Kawhi basically operates out of that spot already, except for he's doing it as a set. He might come off of some sort of, you know, wedge screen or yeah. something like that that's going to get him a touch there where the defender's trailing a little bit but he doesn't really the, the the general point is with exception of this recent stretch with russ where we've seen a lot more transition pushes and driving kicks from russ which have generated closeout opportunities for yeah. those two guys but again like that's the problem you need russ to have the ball to kind of execute these transition pushes and in, in, in his post-ups and stuff to kind of get the defense in rotation. And when you have the ball in the hands of Russell Westbrook, it's just too volatile of an experience. So if you could somehow kind of capture that vibe with James just without the lows, then then that can be exciting. But again, like the, all of it to me is a gamble on him not struggling in the playoffs again. And I don't understand what piece of evidence you would see in the last five years even even going way far back, that would lead you to believe that that's not going to be an issue again. He, like last year, it was the rim finishing. You know, it, it's always the turnovers. It's I, I love this trade for the regular season. I just don't really understand the big picture goal of it all. On the Kawhi Harden thing real quick, if you blitz it, you short roll Kawhi into an open shot. If you drop it, Kawhi pick and pops for three if you switch it you're switching a guard onto Kawhi which is curtains that's actually pretty filthy you can't really do it with Zubats but it's pretty filthy uh Zubats on the court if Russ is going to be out there or if really Terrence Mann is going to be out there because teams will sag off they need one more shooter I think it's probably gonna have to be Norman Powell a lot of the time I digress uh the thing with Harden and Westbrook is 
this this is just like a big picture thing. Like we've talked a lot about the small picture things with this, right? Like into the like nuances. Big picture, Russ is a player that, as you said, this year has thrived getting downhill. He's trying to really push tempo. He's trying to get transition driving kicks. He's trying to create that way. Harden inherently is a slow it down player. He is a guy that is trying to play at his tempo, play half court offense and make it work that way. I think you can do it. I think you can have situations where transition players, more transition centric players and half court centric players can work. Dallas with Kyrie and Luca is a good example of this, right? Kyrie really does like to push. Like he he wants to try and get downhill as much as possible, but Kyrie is also probably the best ball handler like in NBA history, right? And is a 40% three-point shooter. So in half court you can make that work as well. Having Kawhi out there in half court does not diminish Luca. It accentuates Dallas being able to get out in transition and creating shots in both ways. Now with Russ, I think Russ with Terrence Mann, with Avita Zubots, with PJ Tucker on the court, those guys being players that opposing teams just won't guard. Like they, they won't care if those guys get open shots. You brought it up earlier in the conversation about the Boston Celtics, right? So much of defense now in today's NBA is about getting the guys you want to shoot to shoot. Teams, if teams have two or three options out there in terms of getting the guys you want to shoot to shoot, it is way too easy for them now. With Russ and one of Terrence Mann, Vita Zubots, PJ Tucker they're almost always going to have two guys out there except for the minutes where Norman Powell plays And Norman Powell. I don't think is going to come in for one of the bigger dudes. I think he's more likely going to come in for Russ because positionally in length and strength wise, that's what makes sense. I think essentially Russ's presence diminishes James Harden's ability to play in half court as opposed to accentuating it in the way that Kawhi does with Luca and you can get around that. Like you can make it work if you want to have Russ out there because Russ has been like a really good dude in the locker room and he's tight with Paul George and Kawhi. And, you know, he, he's been a real leader for the team. And I believe all of that from what I know. Like I, I have long been like a pretty big defender of Russ on this show. Like I, I, I buy everything like that. But if you want to make it work with those two, you almost have to put the ball in Russ's hands and say James has to be more of an off-ball shooter and has to be more willing to take advantages of things when they come and then be like the secondary ball screen creator. But if you're doing that, why did you just trade all this capital for James Harden, right? So that's the inherent push-pull that I'm struggling with, with this a little bit. And that's why I'm worried about it, I guess. Yeah, I don't understand it either because it was effectively an all-in trade when you factor in what you give up two firsts, another first-round pick swap, two seconds, and yeah. depth. I mean, not quality depth, but you gave up depth. I, yeah. I did think I, I, I did think giving up KJ Martin was less than ideal, but I understand that they had to from the standpoint of of, of the salaries. But like again, I hundred percent agree with you. If the if the end game was we're going to get James Harden and we're going to play slow down half court basketball, 
I don't understand why why you bring the the Russ piece back. I mean, I'm with you. Like, I do think that the the fan bases in general, especially, have gotten really rough on on Russ over the years. But I do think that uh, the the criticisms of him as a player are more than fair. Like it, the the off ball awareness. It's like every game you watch him, it's like uh, uh, D'Angelo Russell just snuck along the baseline. He's not paying attention. There's another wide open layup. It's the the timely, costly mistakes. The you know, the defense he played, you should like, he did such a good job disrupting Devin Booker with back pressure in those first two games of that, of that sun series. That's what he's capable of. And like, like he literally would not do that for the Lakers. He would not do it flat out, just would not do it. And so like, I do think the criticisms of him are fair in that regard. And so again, to me, it made perfect sense within the context of when the Clippers brought him in because he, was not a redundancy. They needed the things he brought. They had the ability to bench him in crunch time if they needed to. But like throwing James Harden into the equation just infinitely complicates that because it removes those stretches of the game where he brings deep value, takes it out of, out of the equation. Now you're going to be playing him in bench groupings. Maybe you'll still have one of Paul or Kawhi out there. Although I guess they're planning on starting it with James. But my guess is they'll stagger him pretty quickly out of the group and then he's going to be running bench groups. So he'll have these short windows where he can be Russ, but it's just really hard for Russ to build his rhythm in such a short period of time like that. And so I again, I I I I don't understand what the big picture goal there is. I, I if I was running the Clippers uh having committed to Russ, I would have looked to use those resources more for some sort of off-ball depth sort of piece thing. And if you were going to make the move for James Harden, I would have probably um, gone with a different type of player in that Russ slot. But it it is what it is. It's easier said than done. And and quite frankly, like none of this matters if they can't stay healthy. And that's been the issue consistently over the years. And at the end of the day, like you know, I, I I'll believe it when I see it. And and I, I yeah. it's almost become a back burner thing in that regard. Even when we're listing contenders, because the Clippers are such an obvious championship contender for, on paper. But how come they never come up in these conversations? And it's because of that simple fact that they're just not able to get through a playoff run in one piece. That's it. And I think that the Harden deal more than anything lifts their floor, which is what they needed. They needed a floor lifter in the regular season to, and I know that people have been very clear, Kawhi is going to play as many games as possible. Like the back-to-back things is done. Like he is, he's playing at this point. And if he gets hurt, he gets hurt. But they're, they're going to want to, once the dog days of the season get rolling here, buy a game for Kawhi here, buy a game for PG there. We haven't even mentioned Paul George. Paul George has been fucking unbelievable to start the season. I am so happy for that dude. That dude just seems like the best human being, and I, I just want him to succeed and thrive is where I'm at. Uh, but he's been fantastic. Fantastic to start the season. Uh, look, I think this – I think it's going to be hard to make Russ and Harden work. I understand the Harden deal in a vacuum because exactly. it is something they probably needed. I'm just going to be interested to see how long it lasts with Russ particularly. And if Russ is more willing to buy into a diminished role, if he's just frankly happier with the Clippers, which it might be true. It seems like he is from all of the press conferences from <clears> so far away. So, so far away, literally a 16 hour flight away. Uh, it seems like he's in a better spot and like he is maybe he like saw something with his basketball mortality in LA with the Lakers. Right. And now he's entered the Carmelo Anthony phase of like the late career where he just wants to help teams win. Totally plausible. We will Mm -hmm. see. Uh, 
Jason, we have uh, we have quick news real quick. Robert Williams will require right knee surgery. Uh, conversations with doctors and his agent are ongoing about what kind of procedure necessary for Williams. How long of a timeline will be needed for recovery? That is from Woj. Uh, how many knee surgeries is that now? It's not that's one. many. <laughs> yeah, it's not one. Um, oh, that sucks. Poor kid. That sucks. Uh, I do just want to note. This is why I was pretty strong in the initial thing I wrote once they acquired Drew Holiday and him that I also, or once they acquired him for Drew Holiday, I would have moved him right uh, away yeah. immediately because I wouldn't want to risk this. But mm-hmm. uh, I hope everything is okay with him. I hope that uh, Blazers fans, I know this is going to be a bummer, but uh, I hope that he can recover and get back as soon as possible. Jason, tell the people where they can find your work, tell the people what's going on. You guys can find the show. We just started a new YouTube channel, actually, under Hoops Tonight. And then our podcast feed is under Hoops Tonight as well. Follow me on social media, Jason Timpf on uh, Instagram and, and TikTok. And then on Twitter under at, at underscore Jason LT. We do a good mix of uh, instant reaction videos, usually twice a week at night. And then uh, we hit some game reactions during the day. A lot more deep dives this year, which I've had more fun with. I feel like I'm... I'm finally starting to learn the better cadence, Sam. I probably should have uh, picked your brain a little <laughs> bit more in the early days, but it, it's uh, it's been tough this year, man. The league is so damn stacked with talent that yeah. like every night there's like five interesting games, and it's really hard not to cover all of them. I know, and now the crazy thing is for me, at least, you don't have to deal with this: is that college basketball starts. So, oh, yeah. like on my list, I have I have to do a Scotty Barnes video, which is coming later this week. I have a Zion video because I want to do a video on Zion just to see how it looks and everything and like do a full deep tape dive as opposed to just like watching once and moving on. Uh, And then I have like four college games that I have to watch before Friday. And then Friday is Arizona Duke. Shout out Arizona, Tucson, Jason, Uh, Florida, Virginia, uh, Texas A&M, Ohio State. Like, there's a loaded slate of games on Saturday here for me, Friday for you guys in the United States. So I am super, super excited for college. I'm also getting stressed about knowing the amount of basketball I'm going to have to watch to keep up. I will try and do it, though. I promise, guys. Uh, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Bassini. Uh, go follow Jason. Jason does fantastic work. Go subscribe to Jason's Hoops Tonight YouTube channel. Used to be over on the Volume YouTube channel. It has now been shifted over. Make sure that you go support Jason. He's the best. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, actually, to talk more NBA stuff with Mark Schindler. Maybe dive into some college stuff if you know something fun happens tonight we will see but until next time we'll talk soon